0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the wind-up. Legends never die.
1: Baseball hit. the right. going be it. Way back
0: there. Oh! Welcome to
1: Hardball. Today, I
2: consider, I consider myself, myself the luckiest, luckiest man, man on, the on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years.
1: It is 9 46 p.m.
2: with the men who saw and made that history.
1: Andy into his wind up. Here's the pitch.
2: Many of whom are no longer with us.
1: Swing out and this the perfect game.
2: Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. At-
1: This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch?
2: Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and again, I thank you for finding us and taking the time to listen to Episode 3, my time with another Hall of Famer from, I believe, 2002, legendary Vin Scully. Quick recap of why this podcast actually exists and why Vin Scully qualifies as the perfect guest in the Hardball mission. I spent a few years in the early 2000s tracking down and having conversations with some of the biggest names of the game. Ted, Hank, Whitey, Willie, you know, the people who only need one name. And as I've stated before, the hope was to engage, not Q&A them to death. My promise to all beforehand was a friendly room, a fan who wanted to hear the history firsthand. My responsibility was to be prepared and to listen. And if I did those two things, coupled with a natural enthusiasm, something interesting could happen. i never been told story or a correction to a decades-long but off-base narrative or more likely just a couple of guys talking baseball, creating a visual through phone lines. So why Vin Scully so early in this series? It's simple, because no one, no one has ever created more visuals than Mr. Scully. Think about this. I don't think there's ever been a more special relationship between a broadcaster and a player than the one between Vin and Sandy Koufax. It dated all the way back to Vin being in Ebbets Field on the day the Dodgers worked him out initially all the way through this moment.
1: It is 9.46 p.m., two and two to Harvey Keen one strike away Sandy into his windup here's the pitch swung on and missed a perfect game. board in right field. It is 9:46 p.m. in the City of the Angels, Los Angeles, California. And a crowd of 29,139. Just sitting in to see the only pitcher in baseball history to hurl four no-hit, no-run games. He has done it four straight years, and now he capped it on his fourth no-hitter. He made it a perfect game. And Sandy Koufax, whose name will always remind you of strikeouts, did it with a flourish. He struck out the last six consecutive batters. So when he wrote his name in capital letters in the record books, that K stands out even more than the OUFAX.
2: The reason I bring it up, there's never been a person who's spoken more about the game than Vince Scully and someone who has just said, please, I've done what I was going to do in the game. I don't really need to speak about it much, yet they formed a bond that I don't think has ever existed between a man upstairs and a man actually on the field. I think it tells you a little bit about Vince Scully as well. No one's ever said a bad word about him. That one's simple. But the reverence in which he was treated during his career, certainly as it was wrapping up and now to this day, is unprecedented. He predates the transistor radio and a time in America where it was a given that everyone had a TV. His voice was the soundtrack of Summer's more summers than anyone who's ever called a game. His welcome to opening day signal spring, his calls of World Series games wrapped up seasons and eras. In the intro to the first two episodes, Stan Usual and Phil Rizzuto, I mentioned I would give a quick backstory of each guest and our baseball relationship. Here's the Vince Scully story. My parents dated at Ebbets My mom's favorite player was Duke Snyder, a future guest of Hardball. My dad's was Gil Hodges. His wife, Joan, will also be on a future episode. I knew more about the Brooklyn Dodgers than any nine-year-old who was born six years after they moved out of Brooklyn. It also meant that with all the amazing people I've had a chance to speak with, men who went to the moon, the first man to climb Everest, dozens of Heisman Trophy winners and other awards, the gentleman who ran the first sub four-minute mile, a former president of the United States, the only people I would ever call my dad about in advance were Brooklyn Dodgers. The phone call to tell him about my upcoming conversation with Vin went like this. He's as important as anyone who put on the uniform this side of Jackie. No pressure or anything. You will hear that I open our conversation with a very big general congratulations because I didn't have the time to go over all that Vin had done. I do have a minute here. 1982 Ford Frick Award winner, and he called more games after his induction into Cooperstown than before. 10,000 plus in total. Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award. Honorary degrees. Multiple halls of fame, including the National Sports Media Association and the Broadcasting Hall of Fame a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and of course, a robust IMDb page outlining his work on TV and in the movies. Oh yeah, the Presidential Medal of Freedom is also on his resume. Red Barber, Connie Desmond, Jerry Doggett, Ross Porter, Don Drysdale, and so many others nationally in multiple sports. He's worked with the best and made them better. You want to know who Vince Scully is and what the Dodgers meant to him? Story is he turned down the New York Yankees job in 1964 after Mel Allen was fired, proving you can find happiness away from home. The New Yorker found his place in Los Angeles. Last thing, I have two daughters, and we found out my wife was pregnant with number two right before my dad passed away. He was born and raised in Brooklyn. I was born there. We named her Brooklyn in honor of him and everything it meant to him. And that included, of course, growing up a Dodger fan who at 20 years old saw his only world title and passed the stories of Dem Bums on to me. It's the root of my baseball fandom and the real reason this podcast exists. Ladies and gentlemen, Vince Scully.
1: I try to call the play as accurately and as quickly as possible and then shut up. It's time for. Ball
2: Mr. Scully, how are you this evening, sir? Oh, I'm good, thanks. And let's start off by you calling me then. Well, I appreciate that, sir. Um, I'd say congratulations on everything you did and then run it down, but we'd be here half the evening. So let me just say a big congratulations to cover it all.
0: Well, it's been a, a very wonderful life. Uh, it's something that uh, I dreamt that I would do, and I received the opportunity at a very early age. And then uh, the good Lord has allowed me to do it for all these years, so we're still uh, hacking away.
2: Well, let's talk about it at a very early age. You, uh, you grew up in the Bronx, correct?
0: Well, I was born in the Bronx and grew up really in uh, an area called Washington Heights, in, uh, near the George Washington Bridge in New York. And uh, I was a big Giants fan because I could walk to the old Polar Grounds as a little boy in grammar school. And uh, because of the PAL and the CYO, I was able to see a a lot of games for nothing. And then I really grew up, I think, in the bleachers of the Polar Grounds because it cost 55 cents Mm -hmm. to go to a game in those days. And by saving up enough soda pop bottles, I was able to to go quite often.
2: And how many friends, may I ask, did you have that were rooting for the Yankees or the Dodgers that made the conversations a little bit more lively in elementary and junior high? Oh,
0: absolutely. In those days, we had uh, several arguments they always involve baseball Rogers, Yankees, Giants, and involved uh, musicians, would you believe? We used to argue, and we didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> but we'd argue about Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman, and we didn't know a thing about music.
2: <laughs> well, you figured if you started a good argument on the baseball field, you might as well carry it to a few different subjects.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we were little kids hanging around by a candy store. And, um, you know, we liked to discuss, and it eventually led to some kind of point of view and some kind of an argument.
2: Mr. Scully, do you remember literally hearing games on the radio and telling yourself, and maybe even other people that that is what you wanted to do?
0: Well, the surprising thing about it was that I wanted to do it long before I ever heard a baseball game. Uh, When I was uh, very small, I was eight years old, and I wrote a composition saying that I wanted to be a sports announcer. Now, for an eight-year-old today, that wouldn't be any upset at all. There's so many things to listen to. But in those days, the only thing we had at all was network college football. And I would listen to that uh, at the age of eight or nine and get excited over the roar of the crowd, even though I had no idea about Alabama, Tennessee. And uh, it went from there.
2: Were you a, um, a statistics freak? I mean, were you looking at box scores in the newspaper? No. Did that interest you?
0: No, not at all. Not until uh, I got into high school when uh, we used to start betting quarters. You would pick any three hitters. And uh, if the three hitters would come up with six hits amongst them, you you would get uh, you know double your money or something. So then I became somewhat interested in what my three men had done. Can, but can, otherwise, no.
2: Do you know who you pick more often than anybody else in, in your little well, my, uh, three-man my
0: pool? My boyhood idol uh, was Mel Ott, who uh, was an extremely successful ball player with the Giants. He hit 511 home runs. He was a left-hand hitter. Uh, he raised his right leg in the air as a left-hand hitter I tried to do that and I looked a great deal like him I raised my leg and I swung the bat left-handed but uh, the
2: results were totally different <laughs> now I read the story uh, a lot of people know you obviously work with Red Barber initially on the Dodger broadcast but you were even exceptionally young for an opportunity that came your way that early correct
0: well yes I was uh, 22 years old I had uh, graduated Fordham University. I had been working as a summer replacement announcer for CBS in Washington, which in itself was a miracle to go from the campus to a 50,000 watt station. And then uh, they offered me a permanent job in February And I was thrilled with that. And they had given me a couple of letters of introduction just to stay alive until February. This was now uh, the end of October when all of the uh, vacations had come and gone for the regular staff. And then they, they sent me home.
2: And And and
0: that's when uh, one of the letters had me going to the news department and I met Red and we had a nice conversation and that was that. And a day later, I got an emergency call from him saying that uh, we needed somebody to do a portion of a football game. And uh, that's when it started.
2: And you did a game, I believe, in Fenway Park, correct?
0: that's right from the roof and uh, it was boston university maryland Uh, maryland was one year away from becoming national champions and it was a terrific game what they did in those days red had a show on cbs called the cbs football roundup in fact one of the announcers was the fabled uh, bill monday from down in uh, in atlanta Mm -hmm. area and uh, the four games were on and Red would bounce from one game to another, and then, as perhaps one game was better, more exciting than the others, he'd concentrate more on that. And the luck of the draw was the big game of the day was Notre Dame, North Carolina, and North Carolina had Charlie Justice. He was a famous All-American, and Charlie got hurt in the first quarter, so that game disintegrated. So did the other two, and my game got better and better, which meant I spent more time on the network but unfortunately, I was on a roof. I wasn't in any kind of a booth. I had 50 yards of cable. And Harry uh God rest his soul, when, when he would pass, I'd run down the roof trying to capture the play. <laughs> and it was a tough day, and I was somewhat uh, disappointed over the fact that I didn't have any kind of a boot, but it worked in my favor because if I had done a very, very ordinary job, and I'm sure I did, Red was impressed by the fact that I didn't complain or didn't mention anything about it, and when he had gotten a letter, from the authorities in Boston apologizing for the fact that I didn't have a booth. So that suddenly in red's eyes made the broadcast, uh, whatever I did that time, even better. So I remember he called me and said, I understand you didn't have a booth. And I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, don't worry, next week you'll have a booth. You're doing Harvard, Yale. And uh, that was the beginning of football. But then at the end of the football season, He said, you know, stay well, and I said, thanks, and I'll probably be in Washington, D.C. starting in February. And heck, the end of December, I guess it was, Ernie Harwell left the Dodgers and went to the Giants, and uh, there was an opening. And Red wanted to have a, a youngster, not a youngster, but a young announcer whom he could mold a little bit. And he remembered the red-headed kid, etc., etc., and that's how it all started.
2: Well, you end up in a booth in 1950, and let's talk about some of the things that you actually had a chance to witness pretty quickly in your career. Now, everybody knows about the Russ Hodges call, and Ernie Harwell that day was working TV, and Mr. Harwell has told me he thought he had the best gig until they realized there was no tape. Where were you that day in 51 when Thompson hits the home? I
0: was uh, in a crouch because the uh, press box at the old Polar Grounds was kind of like a horseshoe, but it, the ceiling was... Behind Red Barber and Connie Desmond, they were the the two top announcers, and I uh, I was just there watching the game.
2: Do you know if any other tape exists besides the Hodges call?
0: Well, I'm sure Red's tape is somewhere around, but it's not uh, it's typical Red. Uh, in other words, uh, the one thing that I learned from Red, I tried to. since home run, as opposed to Russ, who, uh, God rest his soul, kind of went bananas.
2: Now, can I ask, you're sitting with the Dodger announcers, but you grew up a Giant fan. Uh, Bittersweet at that moment for you?
0: Oh, no. No, by that time, uh, you long ago had forgotten that you were a fan. It was uh, strictly business, plus the fact that I was close to the Dodger players, having been with them every day since uh, spring training. So, no, no. uh, When that happened, uh, it was a joke, believe me,
2: uh, but you never, and you're one of the the announcers who's been with the team as long as you have. You're not a wee guy, this is not a wee you mentioned friendly with the players, you're with them just about every day there is to be around a team when baseball season is actually starting in spring training. But you never really adopted a we policy, did you? No, no, not
0: at all. I guess one reason being that starting in New York, where you had three teams, the Yankees, Giants, Dodgers, you knew that you weren't talking to only Dodger fans. Mm -hmm. You were not only talking to the fans of the other team, but you were also talking to Yankee fans and uh, Giant fans as well. So... Uh, At no time was that word we used uh, on Dodger Broadcast, and uh, it's still not used.
2: Mr. Scully, can I get your thoughts on some of the other events that you were a witness to? If I say Don Larson's perfect game, what is it that you remember?
0: Well, I remember working so well with Mel Allen, the great announcer for the Yankees, and uh, as the fate would have it, I was on the last half of that game. And in those days, 1956, Uh, We were still somewhat intimidated by New York columnists. We were always subject to uh, some kind of a knock. And so two things you did in those days, you spoke sparingly. And when we got to the perfect game and I finally wound up sitting there doing it in the seventh inning and we got into the, the The pitfall that we do not have anymore, we decided that we would just call the outs. That's the 16th consecutive out. That's the 19th consecutive out. As opposed to today, where we would just say, he's pitching a perfect game. Mm -hmm. Uh, We avoided that with the Larson game. So I remember that, the fact that we were intimidated uh, by the New York press.
2: Was there an incident with Red Barber, I believe, in 47, where he actually talked about it and it didn't happen, and that was one of the things that was written about?
0: I'm not sure uh, I know he broadcast Bill Bevin's no-hitter that was broken up in the ninth inning and of course when you broadcast something like the World Series you are going to get uh, heavy-handed criticism for the fans or the writers of one team or the other I mean that's a given. Uh, When you're doing the series, people are so partisan that one side will think you're doing a pretty good job. The other side will say you're rooting for the other side, and it's always that way.
2: I think I read a quote where somebody said during that game, and I don't know if it was yourself or Mr. Allen, I believe the line was, and the Yankees have all the hits today.
0: The Yankees have all the hits? Yes. Uh, maybe, but I don't I don't think I said it, but I really don't remember Mel saying it either. I'd have, that's a long time ago.
2: Can I go back to the 55 when the Dodgers do win the World Series? Can I ask, um, from your point of view, it had been such a long time coming for Brooklyn fans and obviously beating the Yankees makes it even bigger if winning the World Series can be bigger than the, than the accomplishment itself. Um, your emotions at that point?
0: Well, I was again on at the last Uh, What you did in those days, the two teams' announcers worked the World Series. This is before the network controlled it. And so Mel and I worked the 53, 55, and 56 World Series. That involved the Yankees and the Dodgers. And uh, the way we would alternate, one announcer would do the first half, four and a half, and then the other announcer would do the, the other half. And as it turned out, I was on the last half of uh, Johnny Padra's victory, and when the last out was recorded, the ground ball to Reese and he threw to Hodges for the final out, I said, ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are the champions of the world, and that was all I said, and all winter long, people asked me, uh, gee, how could you have been so calm as to say, matter-of-factly, the Dodgers are the champions of world. Well, in all honesty, I could not have said another word. I would have broken down and cried because I was so emotionally involved with the players. I knew their frustrations. I knew the pain of losing year after year, time after time against the Yankees. So when it finally came about, it was a somewhat uh, overwhelming emotional experience.
2: Mr. Scully, as emotional as that was, uh, I'm going to be speaking to a gentleman who lives in the state of Georgia, Danny McDevitt, who actually pitched the last game at Ebbets Field in 1957. How emotional was that for you? And did you know the details that that was going to be the last game there?
0: Yes, we all knew it was the last game. In fact, and you can ask Danny if he was even uh, cognizant of it. I think he probably was, even though he was concentrating on pitching. We had a rather famous lady at Ebbets Field named Gladys Gooding, and Gladys Gooding played to be the last game and she arrived in the ballpark with a get to her and she was in there playing the organ saying to herself what is he going to do fire me they're moving and so that's what i remember most of all about that last game
2: now was it true i think i read the numbers about 6,700 or so people in the stands i mean why why wasn't i know it's the end of the year and was it just the people in brooklyn was that their little mini protest at that point or
0: no i don't think so um i'm just trying to capture the moment it's hard to do that but It could have been the weather. You'll have to ask Danny. He might remember. It was the end of the year, so it could have been cool. Uh, The Dodgers uh, were not in the race. The race had been over. They were not going to win the pennant. Uh, There could have been a lot of reasons. The game was no doubt televised. Uh, Plus the fact, I'm sure, uh, it's like the end of a love affair. A lot of people, uh, perhaps of their own choosing, decided not to come, but I'm really unaware
2: of that. Nervous about the possibility? Did you know you were going to be making the move to Los Angeles yourself?
0: Well, I uh, I was frightened because I wasn't sure, and Walter O'Malley was a very, very thoughtful employer, and one of the first things he did was tell me, that uh, I was coming with the team to Los Angeles, so it was bittersweet because one moment I felt badly that I was leaving my hometown and my family and all of my friends, but
2: the other was I was relieved that I still had a job. Mm-hmm. Well, are speaking of Vince Scully tonight on the Legends of the Game segment of Guardball. Uh, I do want to talk about the Coliseum quickly. That's where the Dodgers go to first before obviously the Chavez Ravine is built. You had some memorable games, and we're talking about big crowds with memorable games coupled in those first few years out in Los Angeles.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Among other things, uh, as big a crowd as we ever had was an exhibition game with the Yankees in honor of Roy Campanella. And Pee Wee Reese wheeled Roy Campanella out to the mound. Uh, The public address announcer asked the crowd to light matches they turned the lights out at the Coliseum and it was a sea of lights. And Pee Wee uh, wheeling Roy out to the mound was an overwhelming experience. And after the game, uh, we interviewed Roy. And the uh, first thing he pointed out, he said, Isn't it something? The paid attendance was 93,000. My uniform number was 39
2: huh. backwards. And again, still able to, to be a part of what was going on. Obviously, that. Off-season was the year that Mr. Campanella had his accident. Do you remember how you found out about it?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, We had been in Los Angeles kind of uh, trailblazing before the team actually would come back. So we were here late in 57. And I remember flying back with uh, Roy Campanella, Gil Hodges, and a few others. And uh, we went back to New York. And not too long after that, I remember uh, my mother, bless her heart, coming in to wake me early in the morning, and she was crying. And uh, she told me that Roy had been in a terrible automobile accident uh, the previous
2: night. And I know the 59 World Series, a bad year in 58, an inaugural year out in Los Angeles. Boy, in 59, they were turned around.
0: Yeah, 59 was very, very exciting. Uh, The transistor radio was coming into being. The Braves wound up uh, the Dodgers beating the Braves and going to Chicago and playing the White Sox and then to win the World Series. So they went from a seventh-place club in 1958 to a World Championship club in 1959. Uh, that was a huge accomplishment.
2: Uh, Kirk Gibson's home run in 88.
0: <laughs> Probably it was voted out uh...
2: Reggie Jackson's three home run game in the World Series?
0: I wasn't even here. I was doing football and, and didn't see it at all. Really? No, I was doing some NFL. And uh, that series, I never saw
2: Is it true that you've never been back to the location of Ebbets Field, sir?
0: No, I've never gone back. Uh, it would be too sentimental for me, and there's nothing there anywhere. But I mean by nothing there, no remnants of Ebbets mm-hmm. Field. There's apartment houses, and that's about it.
2: Happy that the uh, Brooklyn Cyclones perhaps now exist, though, the Mets farm team? Well, I wish them well, sure. And let's just finish up this as we finish up with Vin Scully tonight. Mr. Scully, can I play a little word association with some of the people you've known? Yeah, if you do it quickly. Because we've got to go to work out here. Gil Hodges. Uh,
0: Probably as decent a human being as I have ever met and a ballet artist at first base. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? I think he should, yes. His numbers are almost the same as Tony Perez. So if Tony's in, I think Gil should be in.
2: Jackie Robinson
0: a firebrand, uh, the competitor, and really the black man to play. All of the others just happened to be a different color. Jackie had to carry the banner. Uh, he had the uh, the baptism of the fire of uh, racism and everything else and survived a remarkable human being. He Reese, the captain. He was always the captain. He was the most individual player on that Dodger team From the time he came up from Louisville until the time he finally hung him up, he was the man to whom everyone came if they had a problem and if Pee Wee couldn't handle it, his wife Barbara would handle it. Yeah, he was the heart and soul of the team.
2: Two more, sir. Duke Snyder?
0: A great outfielder. A fellow who had an enormous amount of talent, and it would have been displayed a lot better had he played in a bigger ballpark. Center field in Ebbets Field was surrounded by walls. If you put Duke in the polar grounds or Yankee Stadium, you would then really be able to look at his grace and his overall ability, one reason why he's in the Hall of Fame, of course.
2: And last one, Sandy Koufax, who you were so linked with, and I've read the pros, and I would call it pros, of you calling his perfect game. It's It's been actually Put the paper as if it was literature. Um, your thoughts on Mr. Koufax? Well,
0: I was able to see Sandy try out. I was there in the ballpark the first day I ever saw him try out, and I was with him through all of the high points, his four no-hitters, including the preferred game. And uh, he was perhaps in that short period of time, and there have been so many great pitchers, but in that short period of time, he was the best pitcher I ever saw.
2: Well, Mr. Scully, I greatly appreciate your time tonight. I look forward to seeing you when you come into town with the Dodgers. And as we say, true legend, uh, you were named the broadcaster of the century by the Sportscasters of America. And I don't think there is a bigger honor. I know you're in the Hall of Fame. But, boy, when your peers come out and label you the best of a century, I'd imagine that's about as big as it gets.
0: Well, it is, and I'm deeply appreciative, although I don't think about it. Every day, you know, is a new game and a new broadcast. And uh, it's like the ball player old story what have you done for me lately
2: well there's no script and that would some would say is the beauty of the game and you certainly along with a few others as ernie harwell and mel allen and others that did it with you and still continue to do it today the best of them at least they actually been in their company so
1: i say d i say d-o-d-o-d-d-o-d-g-d-o-d-g-e-r-x-l Defy, the J-I, J-I-N, J-I-N-T, J-I-N-T-S. Giants. First of all, you've always been my favorite player, even though you wore wearing wrong uniform. <laughs> you, you know that. But, uh, as I have told everybody, you've also been the greatest player. Well, you, you're my guy. My And I'm your guy, so. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you, my so man.
0: Bless you, you Willie.
1: All my there, Maury Wills, I love you so... Vin's style of broadcasting was very special. story about Vin, I don't know how many people know, that before the World Series, Vin would go to church and pray. Not for a win, but there would be only heroes in the World Series. No goats. But I think the thing I treasure most, he allows me to call him friend. Down in the dugout, Alston glowers up in the booth, in Scully clowns For 33 years, the good Lord has allowed me to do what I've always wanted to do, broadcast my favorite game. He has allowed me to climb my mountain. And today, thanks to the Ford Seafrick Award, I thank you for sharing this moment with me because believe me, today I saw the sea. I'd like to thank the Dodgers, both Brooklyn and Los Angeles, and all of the people along the way. Bottom of the night. Forward to nothing, last chance, push the button, oh, we're pleading, begging on our knees. Come on, you Flatbush refugees. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. The Davis' score is 4-4. Four four. How is running the bases. From second to third, it's almost absurd amazement on everyone's faces. He's heading for home. He hasn't a chance. The poor nut is going to be dead. But the ball hits him right in the seat of his pants. And he small.: So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be. That's using your head.